It is our 100th episode, and to celebrate, we invited some of our biggest fans here to the track for a questions-only episode. All that's next on Talking Cars. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the 100th episode of Talking Cars with Consumer Reports. Uh, as you can hear, this isn't exactly a normal episode for us. We really wanted to take a chance to say, take a moment to say thank you to all of our fans who have supported us and kept this thing going for the last four years. So we have over 60 fans of Talking Cars here today at our Connecticut test track. Uh, we gave them a tour of the track. They listened to our tire guru, Gene Peterson, talk about tires. Uh, they got to see what happens when you have stability control and when you don't have stability control. Uh, they got a ride in the Tesla. Um, they got a ride around the, our um, high-speed handling track. Uh, you know, so again, we couldn't do this without you. It is your support, uh, that your engagement that has kept us going through the years. So this episode is a, a very special one. Now, as you know, if you've seen Talking Cars before, and I hope most of you have, um, we love talking about the newest car that Consumer Reports has bought the test. I mean, parked behind us, we have a Toyota Mirai. We own a fuel cell car. I mean, that's crazy. But our favorite part of talking cars is the questions. So this episode, to say thank you to everyone out there, it's a whole episode of questions. It's questions and answers. We're going to record the questions and answers live here. Uh, so we're really looking forward to that. Now, let me introduce who we have here on the panel introducing the questions. Uh, the people here represent all of the different functions here at Consumer Reports. We have Jen Stockberger. Jen, you wear so many hats, it's, it's crazy. Um, not today. No, not today. <laughs> it's too hot to wear hats today. Um, you run the facilities along with your staff. Yep. You also oversee the testing of child seats and tires, and you oversee our analysis of vehicle safety. Correct. Good job. So that's a lot. Thank you. John Linkoff, he is deputy editor. He represents our content division. Uh, his job and the job of our writers and editors is to take what the engineers make and actually shrink it down, because <laughs> uh, put commas in it, because we don't like commas, and actually get it out online or get it into the magazine uh, in print. And here is Jake Fisher. Jake Fisher is head of automotive testing here at Consumer Reports. He is also my boss. Uh, <laughs> watch it, watch it exactly. Good job so far, though. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And uh, my name is Tom Mutchler. I basically come with the set. Um, <laughs> I'm an engineer here at the track. I specialize in um, you know, vehicle ergonomics and things like that. So with that, we are going to get to questions. Hi, I'm Mark Wisniewski from Reading, Pennsylvania. My question is about you guys. Is your background automotive? Is it journalistic? Is it something else? And are you track testing? Uh, good question, Mark. Uh, Jen, how about, how'd you get here? Okay, so, so what I've said before is, unlike many of you and many of these guys, it wasn't automotive that led me to engineering. It was engineering that led me to automotive. So I have a mechanical engineering degree from the University of Connecticut. And my first interview was for a tire manufacturer and a job I got. So it just compounded from there. The auto industry has been wonderful to my career. So again, I didn't go in looking to do automotive, 
but that's where I ended up. Jonathan. So at six months old, my parents put me in the back of a 65 Corvette in what was probably a cutting edge cardboard child seat uh, back in the 70s. Or and, none at all. Yeah, uh, a bucket. And, and that started my kind of my car affinity, my love for cars. My dad was into cars. So I just, I got into cars that way, have a broadcast journalism degree, have a massive internet management, um, just got in that way through freelance, through car clubs. Uh, track days, and I was able to stumble upon a job here. I think my car knowledge was what really um, made me appealing to Consumer Reports. I'm, I'm not winning a Pulitzer Prize. That's not my super skill set, but comfort on TV also helped a lot and just kind of fallen into place here now 14 years almost. Jake? Always car crazy um, since I was probably four. Um, my, my dad actually tells a story. He used to have Volkswagen Beetles all the time. And um, they had these big, deep hubcaps. Um, so we would be you know, changing the short block on his Beetle when I was like just a little kid. And he tells a story where I actually I tripped and I'd fallen face first in this hubcap, which he had filled with gasoline. Yes, safety first. And, <laughs> and they, 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 well, anyway, the story is just I've always had gasoline in my veins since then. Mm. And I've helped him work on his cars. But I mean, honestly, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it sounds crazy, but I mean, I actually, as a, as, a, as a kid, six, seven year old, I used to read Consumer Reports cover to cover, um, April issue. I would memorize specifications. I'd memorize all these things, and I just, that was it. So I went to mechanical engineering because I was into cars. Um, you know, my, I, w I went to, you know, I, I passed up all these interviews of these really good, lucrative careers, and I said, <laughs> no, if it's not cars, I'm not doing it. And I moved out to Detroit. I was a development engineer um, at Proving Grounds. Um, I raced on the side. I turned my car into a race car. Um, and then I found the, the opportunity here. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Consumer Reports. They're not really car people. And I came out here, and they were just filled with all these enthusiasts. And I was like blown away. And so been here ever since. Well, when I was growing up in the 70s, I thought, you know, I hope someday I get to host a podcast and be a YouTube video <laughs> star. <laughs> Knew at an early age that the internet would be created. <laughs> and foresight. Yeah, exactly. No, I also loved cars uh, from an early age. So, um, like Jake, I went to engineering school. I went to the University of Rochester. Uh, when I was going there, I interned uh, at a division of General Motors. Um, when I graduated, uh, I wanted to come here and work at the test track. Like Jake, I had been reading Consumer Reports since I was six or seven. You know, it, again, it's just, uh, I, I learned a lot from it. Um, but there wasn't a job here at the track, so I got a job at our Yonkers headquarters, and I worked there for 12 years. And I did GPS systems, I did automotive batteries. Um, I also did crazy things like life jackets. I spent like three months, basically my job would be floating in a pool, <laughs> face down. And that explains <laughs> some things, yeah, it, explains, oh. it, it, it explains any of the mistakes made in this, this podcast. So... Um, you know, and then an opportunity arose here at the track. Um, you know, I also, I have a master's degree in ergonomics and human factors, uh, which helps a lot with infotainment systems and everything, you know, self-driving cars and how people interface with the vehicles. Um, second part of your question, I believe, was do we have, are we, you know, ready to trained. drive on the track? Yeah. Um, what about our driving skills? Well, I know that a number of engineers at times have gone done uh, Skip Barber type stuff to sharpen skills, uh, but uh, most of us just come from a background, and 
either you have the track day stuff like I did or you know Mike Monticello who you've seen on the panel yeah, as I mean, well. You've instructed on track day. I've instructed like Corvette with clubs Corvette, Audi, like BMW, uh, NASA, you know, so I've done that. I've, I've sat right seat so I can get free track time, which isn't always the best thing to put your life in <laughs> someone else's hands for free track time. Um, so that's where I've honed, honed my skills and then just the ability to come out here. Uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure where, where everyone falls in. There's different levels, but once you get here, you know, you really do kind of up your game, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, I, I joke that I'm the voice of reason. I don't drive as fast as some of these guys, but I will also say you don't necessarily have to drive that fast to do the evaluation. I know a, a car's going to kick out an oversteer without having it go around in a circle, for example. I can feel it start, and that's enough for me. Um, and we all, I think, have experience outside of here. Certainly at Pirelli, I did a lot of ride and handling tests there. So we all come with some background. As far as an, any official certification, not necessarily. Well, yeah, I, the only thing is, I mean, different ones of us do different tests. Right. So, I mean, we're all driving the vehicles. We're all living with them with our families and, and whatnot. Um, there's certain people that do the track testing and go out there and do that evaluation. And the people who do that have a background. I have an SCCA uh, license. Um, there's others that may not have a license, but they've been trained that way, or they've gone to uh, different driver courses. And, and certainly, there's a... There's a they don't have to build up the kind of that, that confidence and that skill before we start using them for scores. I will say, too, some of that really high-speed driving is a skill that does come naturally to some and not to mm -hmm. others. You can take all the driving courses you want and never be able to do it well, and you can take no driving courses and be great at it. Now, Joe and Ryan Joe are, and Ryan are terrific. a great example. Yeah. Yeah. They're, so they, they're just naturals. Yeah. I mean, some of and you experienced it Experienced today. that, and, yeah, they're yeah. very comfortable at the limit. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, I'm Viraj from Poquade, New York, and my question is, what should someone look for in a new car in terms of safety tech and self-driving-like tech? We're lucky. ESC is now standard, standard equipment, so we don't have to worry about it. But Electronic the, stability electronic control. Stability control. But now the, the next big, big items we're saying are automatic emergency braking and forward collision warning. These are hopefully safety features in your car that you never encounter and never need, but truly they can save your butt. If you get in where you're, you're either not paying attention, approaching too fast, someone does something in front of you that you don't expect, the car will take over those, this, the braking function from you should it, it warrant the conditions to do so. Even the collision warning can bring you attention without the automatic emergency braking and also make you react quicker than you might have if you didn't have it. No, well, I've published that um, towing my yes. Airstream with our Jeep yeah. Grand Cherokee diesel with yep. all this stuff. Uh, I, I admit I wasn't paying attention and traffic had backed up and I hadn't seen it. And it said brake and I hit the brakes and you know, it's 11,000 pounds. I mean, I needed the help and glad there were systems that did that. Right. And we now award vehicles that have it in our overall scores. So we give them that benefit. Um, so definitely look for it. It is not available on everything yet. Our desire would be, like ESC, that everything has its standard one day in the not-too-distant future. Has both of those. Where are we with self-driving or near-self-driving technologies and if we recommend people buy them. I mean, we have a Mercedes E300, which has, um, I'll get the name wrong, uh, Drive Pilot. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I got that right. Um, well done, well done. Thank you. All the names are very, there's a lot of names. Uh, it's part of a $10,000 mm -hmm. option mm -hmm. package. Uh, its benefits are, there are some, but they're a bit questionable. Do we suggest people do that? Not yet. 
Um, you know, there's no data showing that these are actually saving anyone. There's no data showing that these are actually um, preventing crashes. And part of the problem with all of these systems is that they're, well, I mean, it's, they're almost beta. I mean, they're, they're trying out these systems. They don't know really how to implement them. And what we're seeing is that some of them are almost trying to drive the car itself, but they're not ready. And we've, we've talked about Tesla like that with the autopilot system. It's almost trying to take control and having the, you know, the driver there as a backup. And that's, that's a problem. Mercedes-Benz does it a little bit differently. But um, until there's actually data showing that these systems are actually saving lives and preventing crashes, um, we are not promoting them. I do want to make the point that I think it's wonderful that the technology is evolving. And I think the there is absolutely the, the the chance that these things will evolve in such a way that they will be saving people and saving crashes, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, it's very important to say that Ford collision warning and automatic emergency braking are proven Correct. to reduce crashes. Yes, there's already data out there that says, you know, cars of the same model that didn't and then do have it have a percentage lower crash risk. Mm -hmm. Yes. Hi, my name is uh, Pete Romano from New York City, and this question is a good follow-up to the question that was just asked. Are cars with the, the advancing technology becoming so complex that they're not intuitive to the everyday driver? Or is technology advancing so fast that the consumer is having a hard time keeping it up, keeping up with the advancing tech? So, so the safety technology, safety technology, I mean, there's different types of technology. The safety technology that has really been proven effective is the technology that is basically invisible to you. So stability control, I mean, we gave the demonstration before with uh, the car with stability control on and off. Um, to the driver, there was really no difference other than the fact that the car didn't spin out. Um, the forward collision warning and automatic emergency braking, they're going to be invisible to you until you really need them, and then it'll be very obvious what needs to happen. But technology in the broader sense, um, I mean, this goes then times to confusing controls and, and these shifters that are, don't go, don't, you know, they come back in the same spot, it's not clear. Modern cars are getting very, very complex and confusing. Uh, it comes down to the infotainment systems and the you know, Google Maps and Google Earth. And, and what we try to do is kind of dive through that and say, what's really kind of a gimmick and what's really going to help your driving experience and try to draw that line. And there's many technologies that give these cars great showroom appeal. Wow, check this out. I mean, we were talking about the, the BMW 7 Series, right? BMW 7 Series, you could turn up the volume on your radio by going like this. <laughs> okay, that's cool, right? But, I mean, there's a volume control in the steering wheel. I can keep my hands on the steering wheel and do this. Like, how exactly is it an improvement that I can take my hands off the steering wheel and go like this and then look and see if it actually responded? That's technology for technology safe. It doesn't make anyone safer. It doesn't actually improve things. And that's, that's where the problem is. And I think that's what we were talking about. Well, there's also, um, like, lane departure warning and lane departure mitigation. Right. We're kind of mixed on those, aren't we? Well, in that's where you see that there's not a standard, and you see every manufacturer is trying their own thing. So you have some, the Mercedes, for example, gently nudges you, kind of tells you that you're, you're leaving the lane, you haven't turned your turn signal so on, you know, suggests that you may want to stay in that. It doesn't throw you back in the lane like some systems, which will almost ping-pong you between the solid white line and the dashed line. And it's that type of thing. Or on curvy roads, some are very intrusive. Back here, you know, when you're driving into the test facility, you, know, you see we're on these kind of windy, narrow roads. Some systems, they're very intrusive when you're just barely crossing the line, but you're kind of forced to. That's the way the road pitch is. So it, it's that type of back and forth where the manufacturers really need to have a, more of a fine tuning with it to make systems, first of all, more comfortable and, and easy to use, but then also how, how great are they? Is it too much overkill with just system after system after system? 
actually, you know, the, 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 the safety systems for preventing a crash are far key, more key than having something that's going to work on the side road like that. I mean, I know the last week I drove a Subaru Forester with EyeSight, and we are big fans of EyeSight. We recommend if you get a Subaru, get EyeSight. But it also contains lane departure warning. And it is so hyper that yep. you get in the car, the first thing I do is turn it off. And right. that's a bad definition of a safety system. Right. Right. We talk about even lane departure should be speed dependent, you know, maybe on not curvy roads where you're only going 35 miles per hour, but maybe it comes back and engaged at 45 or 50 or something like there, that. There are a lot of systems. I mean, driving the Mariah the other night, I kind of came into, into a, a unique situation reversing out of a parking space. So it has the, the, the uh, parking sensor for the front and the sides, and it also has rear cross traffic right. alert. But Toyota, with their hybrids, also beeps when you put the car in reverse. So it's beeping because I'm close to a car and I'm backing out. It's beeping because I'm in reverse, because I didn't know I was in reverse. And then it's beeping because there's a car coming across. So there's three different pitches of beep. I had no idea what was going on. You end up stopping and just paralyzing yourself. Yeah. What am I going to hit? Who am I going to run over? What's going on? So I'd like to at least see the beeping for reverse going away well, from then, the car. You know, I don't get that. General Motors, they have the vibrating seat, oh, yeah. which I inevitably think, oh, my phone's ringing. You know? <laughs> so, so it's like, when it's trying to alert me of a crash, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Again, it goes back to human factors. It, this is right. distracting. This is not a help. Uh, there are ways to craft these systems and manufacture them that you give the correct feedback, but you don't overburden people. Hi, I'm Jack. I'm from uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, since I'm a pessimist, I was wondering what each of your uh, least favorite cars you've tested are. <laughs> <laughs> who, wants to, who wants to throw the first stone? <laughs> Chrysler PT Cruiser. Aww. Aww. It's so cute. It's so cute. I, like the I drove it around the block and parked it. <laughs> Aww. I could not sit in that car. I, the ergonomics were awful. The seating position was awful. I, I just could that, that was a car that I just remember being repulsed by and not wanting to drive. <laughs> and, and there's easy, there's low-hanging fruit. You know, there's, there's cars out there you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, a little Econobox. No, this is a car that was, you know, a very popular car. They mm. sold a bunch of them, put a bunch more in the rental fleets. And just, I, I wouldn't, won't get into it. Mine, I'm actually probably going to make a lot of people not my friend, but I love them and I love the whole idea of what a Jeep Wrangler. Oh. They're, they're not good to drive and they look so cool and I just want to get in them and go to the beach and take the top off. And, but to drive, they're noisy. They, they have zero steering. They do all zero these steering. things wrong and they are not a pleasure to drive. And I get that there's this huge loyal following. They have actually great resale value and because they're cool. But as far as a driving experience, pretty poor. Who screened these questions? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do the easy one and just be honest. Um, it was the smart, the smart car, the original one. Okay. The, the, the new one is, is quite a bit better, but yep. the original one, I mean, we just couldn't explain enough how terrible of a vehicle this I was. I drove that car for a thousand miles. I'm wow. sorry. Across <laughs> Pennsylvania. I think you, you probably preferred the face down uh, um, life jacket testing. <laughs> I think that would have been a better way to go. But I mean, so just I mean, to give you an idea, I mean, I was doing acceleration tests on this thing. And we had a problem because we couldn't, we couldn't get up to a quarter, we couldn't get up to the speed. You know, we couldn't get up to 60 on the track. I mean, I'm like, well, you can't even do the tests on this thing. And, and we also did a, a, a 45 mile per hour to 65 mile per hour passing. 
So the way we do this test is you go 45 and you slam on the, the, the gas and you time how long it takes to 65, pretty, pretty good. But the transmission was so bad that you get to like 45, you hit the gas and it was like searching for a gear and like mm -hmm. it slowed slow down to 35 and we'd run out of the track again. They couldn't get to 65. It was just such a terrible, terrible vehicle. No, it I had, think it had Ryan, this. <clears throat> I think Ryan Fizzlekowski beat the smart car in a foot race in a 50 yeah. yard dash. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. yeah, we're doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the smart had this, um, has, well, still has an automated manual transmission, a, a dual clutch. Um, it works now. It now works, yeah, but like before that. it was like this hobby horse that would <clears> jerk yep. the whole car. Yep. Oh. Um, and the diesel was worse. Yeah, we <clears throat> because we were gluttons enough. for punishment, we, <laughs> we imported a diesel smart from Canada. Who approved that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Idea. Oh, that was just terrible. That was not, yeah. that was not fun. Uh, I have two cars. Uh-oh. I have two. Uh, the first one is a Mitsubishi Eclipse that we tested back around 06. It was this oh. disco blue color like satin jackets would be from the early 80s. Nice. And <laughs> John has one of hey, those. It's fine. And, um, but I mean, they basically took a Gallant and they stretched it out into this sports car. And it, it, it I mean, I think a Camry may have had better steering feel than yeah. this. And it was so big and you couldn't see out of it. And we, and we bought the four cylinder with a stick and it had no power whatsoever. And even then, you know, in a bit of pity, we tested a V6 powered GT convertible. And you would think that would make it better and it didn't. You really couldn't see out of this unless you put the top mm -hmm. down, the ride would break your teeth. It was just a, a contemptible car. <laughs> Just horrible. Uh, the other car that really gets me mad, and this will inspire hate mail, is <laughs> the current Lexus IS. I'm sorry. That, that makes me angry. If I spend $50,000 for a car, I'd like to be able to fit in it. Uh, it's a luxury sedan. Um, there's no room in it. It doesn't ride well. It doesn't steer well. It finally has a decent drivetrain, but it's not terrific. Also, the all-wheel drive version of that car you look in the wheel well when you get in the car and there's a giant hump in the floor. So it's like you're sitting on an ottoman. It's like, this is Toyota. This is a company that can design a fuel cell car, a production fuel cell car. And they can't design an all-wheel drive system that doesn't put a giant lump in the driver's <laughs> side footwell. In the, uh, the home market, it's fine. Right hand <laughs> That's drive. right, when you sit on the other side. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they designed it for that and then you export right. this yeah. and whatever. Yeah. Hi guys, my name is Don Gerald from Armonk, New York, and my question is, how come modern car interior remains so noisy? Do you, th do you think modern cars are noisy, I guess? Is it that they are remaining noisy and they aren't silent yet? Just compared or? to when I was growing up in the 80s, it just seems mm. to be noisier. And I have a 2014 Honda Odyssey, and that car oh. is so loud, oh, where that would explain in order to have a conversation with my kids, we have to scream. I think you have two hits against you. I think some manufacturers do it better than others. Yes. And I think some body styles are worse than others, particularly minivans. Mm -hmm. It's just a cavernous noise cave, truly. I can remember in, in doing fuel pumps for in, in a past life that in minivans in particular, you could hear the fuel pumps because there was just so much airspace mm -hmm. that it could travel through. So you have almost two hits against you. There's also a, a you know, modern, modern unibody vehicles are inherently noisier than body on frame. So if you go back to the days when it was the Vista Cruiser or, you know, a body on frame, the, the old, you know, Crown Vix and stuff, 
um, they were quieter. In fact, if you get into uh, a pickup truck, if you a new F one fifty, a new yeah. silent, yeah. a new F one fifty, there's so much isolation between the body and then the frame and then those big tires. So now we've gone to this new uh, area where everything is unibody, everything is one structure, it's lighter, it's stronger, um, but now you've got these low profile tires and all this noise is actually radiating in through. So, so yeah, probably the, the, the days are gone of that true silence of those big Cadillacs or whatever they were. Hi folks, uh, Brian Burke, Wilmington, Delaware. Um, quick question, uh, Trump or Hillary? Oh. <laughs> These are my notes from another round. I'm sorry. <laughs> Later this week. Make sure you're filming this, honey. We're not making production now. Uh, quick question: What is what are the best and worst parts of your jobs? The best part, really, for me, is is the freedom. And I've said this a number of times. Um, I, I wrote for freelance before I got here. Um, you know, and you always have your editor looking over your shoulder and the advertiser and the business side looking over your shoulder as well. Um, I've had stuff pulled because. Yeah, you, you were just too hard on that specific thing and, and they don't like that and we're running ads. So it's, it's the freedom to say what really is affecting the consumer um, it, without having to worry about pulling punches at all. I mean, that's a word you'll, you'll see, you know, a little phrase you'll see in some of the special interest publications or on our websites. You know, we just don't have to pull punches. We answer to the consumer. We don't answer the manufacturer, the advertiser, or someone waving a, you know, bag of money. I think for me, it's kind of kind of two things rolled into one. One is this place. So we are very rural. We have this beautiful facility. It's very green. It's just the kind of place I want to come to. So that's one. And on that same vein, our time gets to be very balanced. Yes, we are in um, writing. We are crunching data. We are doing a lot of computer work. But then we also spend a lot of time actively be it putting in child seats or being out on the track testing. We get a nice balance of, um, I kind of had it with this data, I'm going to get up and go do something very concrete and very hands-on for a while, and I really value that. Jake. Um, Is there anything you like about this place? No. <laughs> no, it's terrible. I mean, honestly, this. This is probably the best thing about this job. I mean, you know, seeing everyone here and just realizing, you know, to have faces to the people that we talk to is really exciting for all of us. So, I mean... I, I mean, uh, that it, it really is. It really is something special. Um, I mean, the other thing that's really exciting to me is, you know, again, when I was a little kid, you know, almost the dream was like I could make so much money that I could have a brand new car and I could drive a different car every day, you know. And okay, I don't make that much money, but you know what? <laughs> I could drive a brand new car, a different one every day, and not just that. The I'm like almost the first ones to drive these new cars as they go on the market. That is awesome. That mm -hmm. is so cool. I I, I gotta say. Um, you did say one of the worst things too, and I think yes. everyone else skipped your question. We'll get to, we'll we'll get to the worst. We'll get to the so. worst. Um, I am mad because you stole my answer. Uh, <laughs> this is the best thing. This, this, this is amazing. I mean, talking cars has been so fulfilling. I've had a long career with Consumer Reports, and this is honestly the thing that I am the most proud of, is, is the fact that we can reach people out there, we can help them make decisions, we can entertain them, we can educate them. That's very rewarding. And I mean, people recognize me in crazy places. I can go on vacation in Maine and someone recognizes me. I can be in an improv theater in New York, an intermission, someone comes up to me and, I have a drink in me, are you Tom Mutchler? <laughs> <laughs> there are bad things about the job. Uh, John? So we're independent, so we don't go on those cool trips. <laughs> it's um, true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's nice true. to get on a 
jet first class and yeah. go to someplace yeah. warm and I, sunny. My, my, my Facebook feed just likes less of, oh, everyone's in Iceland this yeah, week. Everyone's Is in everyone? Cote d'Azur. And I'm like, you I want to go too. We don't do that. But, you know, it's not worth my soul. <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Um, there's, there's bureaucracy. There, you know, there's this day-to-day grind sometimes. You know, you're, you're stressing to put it out. I mean, again, I'm on the editorial side, so, you know, I've got the... The deadline, you know, especially print. I mean, web, a little more, a little more fluctuation there, you know. But that thing has got to go to the printer, and it's got to be out. And if you're you're haggling over findings, you know, you're looking for the right turn of phrase, you know, you're just kind of waiting back, you know, back and forth for design. You know, it gets stressful. It's it's it is a job, and and but that's if that's the worst thing that it's a job. <laughs> far be for me to complain. Mm-hmm. I think for me, and I've talked to a couple people here about it today, is it's, it's not so much a bad thing, it's something I had to get used to, is we don't make a thing. We don't have a concrete product that we made. And coming from jobs where we made tires or we made fuel pump modules, mm. we make information. And it was very different for me. There wasn't a production line. There wasn't you know, all these things that I had become accustomed to. And I will tell you, the quality measures that go into the information are almost more stringent than the ones that went into some of the product. I mean, the checks and balances that we do. But it was hard to get used to. Jake, meetings. Ah. <laughs> I mean, look, it's, it's still a job. We still have meetings. And we want to be doing stuff. We want to go making videos and driving the cars and stuff. And inevitably, like every job, we have meetings and just meeting items, and they always seem to go on too long. We have a meeting about running meetings. <laughs> we have had that. Yeah. Um, for me, the worst part of this job are YouTube comments. <laughs> the, the other night, I went to a comedy roast for an improv friend of mine, and I was on the panel. So part of the tradition is the other panelists roast the other panelists. Uh, so my friend Erica, in order to roast me, she read me some of the worst oh. comments oh my God. off of oh YouTube. My God. And I mean, the people in the audience who are kind of oh hardened comedy God. people, they were, they were shrieking in horror at some <laughs> oh of the things God. that... It was like that, mean tweets. Yeah. When the celebrity reads their mean tweets. Yeah. yeah, and with the help of a lot of therapy, I've gotten <laughs> able to... I've become able to handle this. Oh, my but, God. But, I mean, you see people... Okay, I understand that people are passionate about cars. That's great. We're passionate about cars too. But the, the angry things that some people write, go hug your, your wife or play with your kids or ask your mom to bring more Fritos down to your basement lair. <laughs> I mean, just, just, just do. Get a life. <laughs> Have some civility. But, I mean, again, if that's the worst thing about this, Stop reading those comments. I'll yes. take it. <laughs> well, thank Stop. you very much. And thanks for today. We're having a great time. Great. Thanks, Brian. Thank, thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Beer, and I'm from Princeton Junction, New Jersey. Thanks for having us out. Um, so I've got to ask this. What is CR's love with soft-touch plastics in cars? Awesome. <laughs> I, 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 listen, yeah, I get it on the door panels, the touch points. I don't know of many people that lovingly fondle the top of their dashboard. <laughs> Except Tom. And Except those Tom. people are missing out on my <laughs> greatest pleasures. Sometimes your cat has to have a nice song. <laughs> <laughs> Sly, you know. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is my domain um, because uh, I evaluate fit and finish in cars. Um, here's the analogy sure. that I have that I prepared for this. Um, Say you go to a hotel. Yeah. You go in. All you're going to use is the shampoo and the chunk of soap. Okay, so you go in a hotel, and that's all you have there. No, all right, that's fine. But you go into a hotel, and it has soap, conditioner, body wash, face wash, face cream, 
you know, a couple, lots of fluffy towels. You're like, ooh, fancy. <laughs> and you're never going to use that stuff. But the fact that other hotels have it and that you have certain levels of expectation for luxury does play a role. And it's gotten to the point that in the modern automotive world, a soft touch dashboard is a price of entry that you're seeing even in $19,000 um, compact sedans, you know, Subaru Impreza or a Ford Focus or a, I mean, a Golf, Volkswagen. Volkswagen started this whole thing. You know, they started that off in the late 90s with the Jetta and the Passat, you know, cars that were almost Audis mm -hmm. uh, for less money. Um, it's basically, it's keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, you're not going to touch it very much, but it is something that other luxury cars have. I mean, the place that's key for it to have is your right. The door panels, you want a nice soft place to put your elbow. Uh, a lot of German cars that have narrow um, driving positions and wide consoles, you want it right where your knee's going to hit because your knee will hit it. And it's, the CX-9 has a narrow driving position. Some versions of it have a pad there. Our Touring doesn't. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's certain strategic places in a car to put padding. Otherwise, it is keeping up with the Joneses. When so it comes it's, it's to more aesthetics? It's more aesthetics. Also, I mean, you can get graining. You have a, typically, when you have a soft-touch material, the graining can be a little less sheen. Mm. You know, it can look a little more natural, although you can do that pretty well with hard plastics. Um, yeah, a lot of it's aesthetics. A lot of it's keeping up with what other cars have. I inherited fit and finish from you, so do you have any? I just want to say, and you already touched on it a little bit, is there is a difference in reflection. So I, I don't know if you'd be in cars where the whole dash is reflected in, in, the, in the windshield. I do think it does take away some of that. And to add to your point, I do think it's a perception of quality. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would add anything you touch, anything you do touch, it's even more, more important. It's criminal, though, when the dash is soft and the armrest, the center yes, armrest right. is hard. Like, yeah, I, think, right. I think that right there has that. Just awful. You know, yeah, like, Jaguar's not building nice, interior, great interiors right now. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. here we go. <laughs> now that hybrid fuel economy has surpassed 50 miles per gallon overall, how much more fuel, how much more fuel efficient do you predict hybrids will be in the near future? Is it 75 miles per gallon or 100 miles per gallon or what? So, so first of all, can you give, give us your name and your age too, <laughs> if you don't mind. Anthony Zingale. And where'd you come from? Pembroke Pines, Florida. And how Florida. old are you, Anthony? And I'm 13 years old. Wow. And, and I swear, I think you know more about cars than I do. I've been talking <laughs> yeah. to this young man <laughs> and yeah. I am just or I know just Absolutely as much. Absolutely blown away. I know just as much, I think. I want to know what he thinks. What do you see What do you think? Happened. How high do you think fuel economy will go? I think fuel economy, if the Prius got 52, probably, probably it's going to go up to over 60 or 75 in the near future. Like, let's say next generation Prius, like... In another five years, the uh, Prius will get another redesign and get like, what, what, uh, 60 miles per gallon, 60, 62 miles per gallon. You're probably right. Does anyone else have questions for Anthony? Because I think actually, <laughs> no, I, that's, that's probably right, the trajectory. Because we, we saw the fuel economy increased from, was it 44 miles per gallon to 52? So it, was, we, it, was, it was 41. Then 44, and then 42 yep. with the Prius Touring, and then 44 again, then 52. <laughs> I love you. I love you. <laughs> 41 for the sedan with the tiny trunk. Right, right, right. 
to answer your question, I think you're right. I think it's going to, I do think, I mean, the Prius, they got a lot out of some fairly incremental improvements. Um, I do wonder if we're starting to reach the point of diminishing returns. Diminishing returns. I mean, yeah. the Prius is an extremely aerodynamic car, very low rolling resistance, a mm -hmm. very sophisticated powertrain. And again, the Prius is the only gasoline hybrid car that gets 52 miles per gallon. So that shows that it's not easy. So yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit bragging rights, though. I mean, whether or not it's 52 miles per gallon or 58 miles per gallon to a consumer, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference in terms of your fuel costs and fuel usage. Um, so you know, bragging rights, horsepower, does it have a top speed of 160 or 165? Mm -hmm. None of it really matters that much. I think what's more exciting is we want to see more vehicles getting the 52 miles per gallon. I mean, imagine yes. a small luxury car that gets 50 miles per gallon. Yeah, imagine I really a... appreciate that. So everyone could have a really cheap fuel bill. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It would have more impact on everyone if we had more vehicles, not just the Prius getting 50. Great, thank you thank so you. much. You're welcome. <laughs> Hi, I'm Thomas from Massachusetts. And uh, my question is, what are some interesting ways your testing or survey methods have changed since episode one of Talking Cars? The biggest change that we did was, was this year when we changed to an overall score. Um, so, I mean, we really completely changed the way we provide ratings. So it used to be we would go and we'd, here's how they did in our testing, um, but don't get the one at the top because it's unreliable. Um, this year we wound up bringing all that together and putting in owner satisfaction, reliability, and safety information and having a, you know, one, one score of the, of, of the vehicle. But beyond that, we're always changing things. Um, we like to change things around a little bit, make the manufacturers kind of guess a little bit so they can't, you know. That way they have to buy the next issue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean, we, we've, made, we've made tweaks here and there um, in terms of how much we weight their certain things. Um, I'll, I'll let you know, we've, we've increased uh, uh, the weighting of things like noise and ride. We've realized that that's really important when you buy a car. Um, and we've made some other changes like that too. Mm -hmm. I mean, also from the editorial front, we're doing some pretty neat stuff with survey now, aren't we? Yeah, so we do a lot of uh, recontact now with our surveys. Before mm -hmm. we would have, we would, we would send out our survey. First it was in paper. I think we yeah. still use paper back with the we first episode. And you know, so we would send out the survey, we'd get the data back, we'd crunch it, we would present it. Now we're not only, we've gotten rid of paper, uh, we're not mailing it out anymore, we're doing it electronically, but this allows us to have more freeform uh, fields for people to fill in specific information, ask, we could ask them specific questions and recontact. So now they're gonna put in information and we can go out and ask you, you know, hey, tell us about your Volkswagen GTI or tell us about your Lexus IS in this specific survey that we're, you know, we have second questions, follow-up questions. So we're able to mine that data and put it into print, you know, on the web, whatever we do. You know, if you looked at April issue uh, last year, or I, I'm sorry, I believe it was a reliability issue. You know, we had quotes, verbatims from people from, you know, what experiences they had with their bad cars. And that really goes a lot deeper than just telling you with a blob, it's a, it's a one blob, it's a two blob. Now it's telling you, well, you know, it's the alternator that kept failing in that vehicle. It's not just the electrical system. So it just, it, it allows us to give a lot more data back to the consumer. Uh, they can make a wise decision. So, so, so you just heard something. Blobs. That's what we call them internally. The yeah. little, the little dots, uh, the red dots and the black dots. It's a we very technical them blobs. term. Technical yeah. term. It is. But, but yeah, John's exactly right. And you know, it used to be we just yes, it is you know a body integrity problem. But now we can go back and exactly find out what exactly that problem. So with power windows stopped working. Yeah. Talking cars and the feedback we get from 
from people helps confirm these yeah. choices. Well, and just, and just to, I mean, maybe it's going to sound sappy, but I mean, you know, we work for you guys. Um, we don't get paid by the manufacturers like other automotive information. So we don't have to please GM. We don't have to please Nissan. We don't, we don't care about that. We care about you guys. So, I mean, as much as open channels we have, whether it is this or whether it's the, the Consumer Reports Cars Facebook page or Twitter or however you could get in touch with us, you know, we want to make changes and, and make sure that whatever we create, what our content we're creating is what you guys are really looking for. Good afternoon. My name's Hal Evanson from Jamison, Pennsylvania. Um, in one episode, Tom mentioned that there were some cars that he gets back into and just doesn't like them as much as he had remembered. Um, what kind of cars are they? Is, there, is it a feature that makes you not like it as much anymore? Or is it just that there are better choices that have come out? I'm a cranky curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That, that is true, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, there is a very good reason why Consumer Reports auto test is set up the way it is. This is a roundabout way of actually answering the question, so bear with me. Um, again, we buy everything we actually test. We hold on to it for a long time. You know, I will drive a car multiple times before we give it any sort of number. And that's because you can drive some cars and the initial impression you get is that this thing is the greatest mm -hmm. thing in the world. Sure. And also, look, there's hype around cars. There's, you know, this is the comeback kid for the company. This is, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that floats around cars. It's a huge business. Um, so sometimes it takes a while to pare that down to and distill that to how I actually feel about the car. Um, two cars come to mind. Uh, one is the Volvo XC90. Uh, the XC90, again, has a great story. It is Volvo's comeback car. It is a clean sheet design. It's the first thing showing what... Um, Geely, you know, the Chinese owner Geely's money is doing, the car is gorgeous. I mean, it is a budget Range Rover, you know. Yep. I like Volvos. I've owned, you know, before I worked here, I owned several Volvos. Um, the more I drove that car, though, the more I despise the infotainment system and the more I cannot stand the ride. No, it is too hard, it is too jiggly, it is meant for Swedish roads, whatever that means. <laughs> um, the other car is um, a bit, this happened a bit recently, is the Mazda CX-9, which is a terrific driving three-row SUV, but I don't fit in it well. And the more I drive it, it's like, okay, I really appreciate how well this drives, but if I'm not comfortable in it, eh, you know, I'm not as thrilled about it anymore. How about you guys? I'd say I've, I've had both ones I've hated and then have appreciated down the road, but because of the different driving experiences. So the Toyota Tacoma, for example. Now, it's not a great vehicle. In fact, it's not even a great previous generation version of the Tacoma. We don't know what they did for 11 years of redesign and brought this Tacoma out. It looks like they just changed some, some badges and some body panels. It's got a GoPro mount. It does have a GoPro mount. Nice. It doesn't come with the GoPro, but it has the mount. Um, but it's a really, I mean, it's, it's a truck, and it's a rough truck, and it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad ride driving around. But you put some, some gear in it. You put some family, you put family members in, not in the back, in the, in the cab. And, you know, the luggage and stuff. And it smooths out, and it was okay to drive. Now, it doesn't make the seats better. It doesn't make the ergonomics better. It doesn't make the, the 
infotainment system better. But you know, you see, you see it in a different light. You know, okay, well, it works here. It's definitely more of a work truck, and it's and it's fine. Don't sell it as a, as a regular vehicle. You know, the F Pace here. You know, as an example, I, I didn't like it when I got into it. I haven't liked it in any ride since. Maybe, <laughs> maybe down the road, you know, I'll spend a weekend and, and, and learn to appreciate some aspects of it. I, I don't think so. But that's a vehicle that's, you know, come up to it first, and it, and it just hasn't changed over time. Jen? I, I just want to elaborate on something you said in the re repetitive tests of something. You can get in something and have something you don't like, and you can chalk it up to, well, it's my first time here. But if you get in it repeatedly in that same issue, you talk about infotainment. If it's the 18th time that you've accidentally not put it in reverse or you needed to oh, do it twice, or, or the 18th time that you've tried to change the radio station and, and been unsuccessful, they tend to aggravate you more the 18th time you've done it versus the first time you've yeah. done it. And I would say the same thing about seat comfort and ride and those type of things. So I think you're right. You can either end up loving or end up hating more a car once you get in it a few more times. Mm -hmm. Jake? I mean, similar stuff. I mean, uh, one that comes to mind is the, uh, the Scion FRS. Um, <laughs> when I, we first That's drove it here, I took it around the track and I drifted it sideways everywhere and I thought, this is the coolest thing. How cool that this car came to market. And I'm thinking about, you know, old, old rear drive Corollas. And, and, you know, and then I drove it back and forth to work several times and I realized, wow, this is really noisy and the shifter isn't that great. And, you know, I'm not drifting on the way home from, from work, so. And you got stuck in a surprise snowstorm with oh, it. Oh, that was you? a good time. That, <laughs> was, that was entertaining. I think it took me six hours to get back from the Yonkers, but anyway. No, a two hour drive, yeah. Yes, exactly. But um, yeah, so I mean, there's these things that kind of gnaw on you, but I mean, I, you know, I just want to pick up on something that Jen said is that we talk about infotainment systems a lot, and they're cumbersome, and they're confusing, and whatnot, but there's two different kinds. There's the kinds that are like, wow, this is overwhelming. I'm looking at the, uh, the Audi TT. You know, it's got, there's no center stack. There's no screen in the middle. Everything is with the steering wheel controls, and a knob, and whatever. When you figure it out, it's, yeah. there's very smart things in it's there. It's actually pretty logical, and you yeah. get things done. There are other cars, like Cadillac Q <laughs> system. I know how to use it. I know every tip and trick. It still takes me way too long to do simple things. So that's, that right. never gets better. And you know, just thinking about how our process is different than, than other, other publications, other websites. You know, we buy it, it takes us a little longer, we wait for it to come in. Okay? Then we drive it and we put 2,000 miles on it. Everyone goes through it. Then it goes through testing. You know, we live with it for a lot longer. You're going to find these things out through that time period versus a three-day trip to Cote d'Azur or you know, mm -hmm. even the, the one-week or even two-week press loaner. You're just not going to see that. And these are the mainstream vehicles that you, you know, most people are buying, you know, not, not the 10% you know, super luxe, top trim you know, with, with the endangered species seats. You know, this is going to be the cloth, the cloth seats. They're that, so soft. They are supple. You know, they're nice against my baby soft skin. Uh, but you know what? Those are the ones that don't have the great support. And you learn that from spending three hours driving one way to Yonkers and then three hours back. You know that it has no lumbar support and you go, oh my gosh, what the heck? You know, whereas the leather press car has four-way adjustable lumbar and 12-way adjustable power seats. So that's, that's a unique thing as well. That, that's what helps over time kind of, kind of learning about the car. Hi, uh, I'm David Tomac from Westchester, New York. Uh, as an owner of and lover of a car with a manual transmission, Yay. I'd like to know what you guys think of as what is the future of the manual transmission? Oh. Oh. You're a hero. Yeah. <laughs> I do what can I we, can. Can we have a moment of silence? For yeah. <laughs> yeah, the wake is scheduled for next week, I believe. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you know, I, I think of, 
you know, hearing about someone like Ron Fellows or whatever who goes to the Nurburgring and, you know, leaves whatever Corvette he's driving in, in the automatic mode because it's quicker. Um, you know, computers do it better. You know, look at the, yeah. the Porsche, this Porsche PDK, the Porsche Doppel per gang hanger, whatever. That's exactly yeah. it. It's about this big. Um, <laughs> it's quicker. The 911's quicker with that than the seven speed manual. You know, that's, that's just where they are. And for just performance, let alone fuel economy, let alone emissions, let alone any of that. I mean, look, there's some things that, the, that any automatic is still not doing well as a manual transmission. And, you know, one is being completely engaged with the car. And, and look, Get a, get, a, get a manual if you can, you know? I mean, there's certain things, like I'm, I'm about to go up a hill. Well, I can put it in the lower gear because I see it. The automatic transmission can't do that yet. Um, in terms of how you let out the clutch, you know, I know I want to take off really quick this time, not last time. It can do that. You could feather the clutch. Um, and plus, I think I was saying this, you may have said this before, but um, to me, I think a manual transmission is a life-saving device. And then follow me through here. Um, but one problem that we have right now is distracted driving. It's a very serious issue. And yes, with these semi-autonomous cars, it's like you're just not engaged with the car anymore. You don't know what's going on. You, 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 you check out the steering wheels are going by themselves. And if you can stay engaged with driving, you're not so likely to pick up that phone and look at that text message or call somebody because you're totally bored. But you've got one hand that has to do something. This is a good thing. And you know, I mean, certainly when my kids need driver's license, I'm going to get them to drive a, a stick shift yeah. because I want them driving the car and not, you know, playing Pokemon Go or something. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm driving a piloted car. Yeah. yeah. Jen. I, I would go back with a question to you guys. Do you think they'll still make them? Ha. Huh. Is there going to be a point when it's not worth the manufacturer, even the segment's so small, that they'll just stop making Well, you them? know, they have to crash test the manual transmission version. That's expensive. You well, know, yeah, emissions certification is a real That's what I'm saying. Is there expensive. a point when it's just not going to be to their benefit? They like you. They, that will hurt us. As right? a fan, then they'll throw you up and say, like, see, we have fans. And then they'll go, but I'm not going to sell you a manual transmission. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You know, I spend, I used to spend a lot of time on enthusiast car forums. And driving a manual transmission is a badge of honor. You know, that, the, you know, if your car has three pedals and, it, you know, and you'd see people, you know, they'd ask if I, should I get the stick shift or not? And, you know, my wife doesn't drive one and you'd see other people post, she'll learn to drive the stick shift. <laughs> Those people are losers. <laughs> um, and they will probably die alone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you really think. Huh? Come on, don't hold back. I think the manual transmission is going to become a niche product. Um, there are certain cars. I mean, we have, we just bought a Boxster to test, and it has the PDK, oh. and it makes me sad. Um, there is something very rewarding and engaging about <clears throat> being able to mesh with the car so much. I mean, a Miata with a stick. Um, we've driven a Fiat 124 Spider with an automatic, and it was sad. Um, but that's a niche. I think, I mean, look, the market's spoken. I mean, I'm amazed BMW still offers manuals. I have a friend who uh, bought, you know, who has the money, and he bought a 3 Series with a stick. I'm like, you're still driving sticks. You're almost 50. And he's like, this will be the last one I can get because they'll just, he knows, they'll stop making them. Yeah, it took an uprising for them to bring a stick in the M6, I think, or the M5. Yeah, he has a 340i. You know. I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, it's just... The market's spoken. I mean, Volkswagen, you know, with you know, a lot of people ask about, 
There's only certain option packages you can get with them. They make it really tricky to get. Um, I have a GTI. Yeah, GTI. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough uh, to get too. Yeah. It's it's a shame, but it's becoming a niche, and I just don't see I don't see the tide turning. There's something sad about that, but there's something logical about it too. Hi guys, thanks for having us. My name's Bryce. I'm from Wisconsin. My question for wow. you, and I talked with Tom a little bit about this earlier. I ordered a Golf back in March. It's still not here yet. I'm waiting for it. Got caught in Mexico because there was a flood in Texas. Still waiting for it. The Honda Civic wasn't out yet. I was out on the track today with Gabe and the Honda Civic, and it was fantastic. <laughs> and I want a manual, which is why I went with the Golf, and I have a sickness because I want a wagon, which no one else wants. But I would be willing to give up the wagon if you guys or if anybody else, you know, could sway my decision that, you know, I've had two Camrys. I'm on my second one now. They've been reliable. Hmm. Would it be a smarter decision to say, hey, maybe this Honda Civic or the Accord, which drive just as good, if not better, is that a smarter choice? Well, first, let me say, if you went on the track with Gabe and the Volkswagen, you would be like, wow, that's really fantastic. <laughs> because it, it, it's, it still is a better driving mm -hmm. vehicle. But um, if reliability is your number one thing, mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to lie. Um, you know, Civic, Civic just got redesigned very, very heavily. That's a weird thing for, for mm -hmm. Honda to do. You know, often they kind of like, they redesign it, but they carry a lot of stuff. So if reliability is a thing, that Civic, I don't know. It's a big, major design change. The Accord, that's proven itself. Mm -hmm. The Accord is going to be a sure bet. But, um, you know, we, we're, we're not to the point where we're getting the big thumbs up for the, for the redesigned Civic. Sure. But, I mean, if your heart is yearning for a golf sport wagon, it's not going to scratch that itch. But True. if you liked the reliability of your Camry starting every morning and not visiting the dealership, <laughs> yep. there's something to be said for that, too. But, yeah, you know, who do you want to know more? You know, your, your family and friends or the service advisor. <laughs> um, that's the play. But the wagon certainly is very flexible. You know, I might, I might roll the dice and take the, take the wagon. Sure. So that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Talking Cars. I, I really want to take some time to thank you to, and to thank everybody. I want to thank the people here sitting with me on, on the panel now. I want to thank all the other staff members who have been on Talking Cars, Gabe, all the mics, um, Anita. <laughs> uh, uh, we've had a lot of people, uh, Michelle, a lot of people on the podcast, which I appreciate. Uh, a big round of thanks needs to go to Dave Abrams because he is our head of our video department. This thing looks as good as it does and is as coherent as it is <laughs> because of him. So a lot, we owe a lot to him. But what we owe the most to is you. We owe the most to our fans. When we started talking cars, we, we were wondering, look, you know, are there enthusiasts out there? We're all car enthusiasts. Are there other enthusiasts out there who care about things like safety and reliability and fuel economy and car companies just doing the right thing? thing. And the Talking Cars audience has proved to us that there is. And that is very, very rewarding and very satisfying. Again, you guys help make this possible, and that means an awful lot to us. So like I always say at the end of every Talking Cars episode, thank you so much for listening and watching, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.